Our text for this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just the first nine verses. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Fathers, we come now to the study of this epistle and we begin a, a new study that will take us over the next several weeks. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us into truth as we search our way through the scriptures and as we work to understand your will for us, that we would be pleasing to you in all things. Father, guide our minds and our hearts and our lives as we study these things. Help me and cause me to be an able communicator of, of all of this. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. Not too long ago, the phone company left a stack of phone books, yellow pages, on the door, uh, the doorstep of the church office. And upon seeing the stack of phone books, my first reaction, my first response was, oh great, it's phone book day. No, no it wasn't. I didn't think that at all. It was, my first thought was, what am I supposed to do with a stack of phone books? I, I, I don't have a need for a phone book much less a plethora of phone books. What do we do with these? When's the last time you actually looked up something in a phone book? Um, Google will not only give you a phone number, but it will give you the hours of the business that you're checking out. It will give you a map to their front door. It will give you pictures and reviews and all the information you need about doing business with the place you're looking for. So given that, why would you go flipping through the yellow pages. It, it, it seemed almost as weird as if somebody had left a spinning wheel on the front step or, or, a, or a butter churn. It's like, what, what do we do with this? this, this is, we, does anybody use these anymore? It, it is quite amazing the number of things that have passed out of general use in just the last few years. Telephone booths, uh, newspapers are going away, road atlases, video rental stores, 24-hour photo de developers, fax machines, all these things, and we could probably name more. Another thing that seems to be going away, it might already be gone, is the art of letter writing. When's the last time that you received a handwritten letter? I'm not talking about a card or a note. I'm saying a handwritten letter several pages long. Um, rarely do we see that, that kind of extensive long-form handwriting before. We're used to typing. We're used to texting. Unless you're in school, if you're still in school, you you'll write a lot, but, but most of us who are beyond, beyond school, 
we rarely write long sentences with our own hand. Your hand starts to cramp after, after about four words. And there are far more easy uh, ways to communicate than by writing your thoughts down on paper. But are we, are we losing anything? Is there, is, there, is there any benefit to slower communication, of taking the time to write out four or five pages of thoughts, uh, folding it up, putting an envelope, sending it to someone, and then waiting for their reply. And it's not instant. There's nothing quick about that. There's nothing, that, there's, there's no uh, immediacy to writing a letter like that. And then waiting, you know, for them to get around to handwriting you back a response. Is there, is there any benefit to that? See, I don't miss the yellow pages and I don't miss blockbuster video, but is there any benefit to the care and thought that you have to put into a handwritten letter or in handwritten language? Are, are we lacking something in the very casual, very informal uh, manner of communication that we're all used to now? Uh, so a so hundred years ago, how did people communicate that they were happy without an emoji? How, how did they communicate that they were laughing without LOL? Were there other ways to do that? Were there other ways to communicate, I'm joking about this. I don't have to write you know, a, a sarcastic grin or something. You know, I don't have to use, a, use an emoji. Uh, so, so there's some skill with the language that I think that uh, departs when handwriting and handwritten letters depart. And, and, and another thing that we may lose, another thing we may lose in our distance from formal written communication is our ability to read and understand the Bible. The bulk of the New Testament is comprised of formal handwritten letters. The epistles are wholly inspired correspondence between the apostles and the churches and, and this correspondence has, has been preserved for us, for our edification. And, and they aren't holy emails. They aren't holy texts. They aren't holy Instagram messages. Uh, they're, they're not holy memes even. You know, if Paul just sent a picture of himself with white text on the bottom and the top, and like if that was the way he could communicate, that would, we'd have a very different New Testament that we have today. But, but the Bible is something very different from all of that. They are formal letters, and the fact that they are formal letters re requires us to possess some skill and some literacy to understand what they're communicating. So connecting with the epistles requires us to understand not only the context, but the culture that they were written in. Now, before we dive into studying 1 Corinthians, which we will over the next several weeks, we need to peel back 2,000 years of history and we need to get into the world that this letter was written in. We haven't outgrown our need for these letters, by the way, and, and, and their technology has not been replaced by something better, uh, not at all. Their instruction, in fact, is far more advanced than we are, and we have work to do to catch up to the, the content of these epistles. So the book of 1 Corinthians, or the, or the epistle of 1 Corinthians, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christian church in the Greek city of Corinth sometime around the mid-50s AD. You remember from the book of Acts that Corinth was a place that, where Paul spent some considerable time. He, he spent more time in Corinth and Ephesus than, than he did in, in other places, and Corinth was, was one of the big stops. Uh, while he was there, he developed some deep relationships with the people in the church. Paul came to Corinth on his second missionary tour after having a series of frustrating experiences leading up to his visit in Corinth. In, in the previous four stops, he, he had considerable difficulty. In Philippi, 
in Thessalonica and Berea, a pattern would develop. He, he would come to the city, he would immediately start teaching in the synagogue, and he would get off to a great start. People would receive him and hear him, and he was very popular, but quickly he would be confronted by the fanatical Jews who started to see their influence slipping away and Paul's teaching gaining a foothold in the synagogue. So the fanatical Jews would derail his efforts. And so there would be this confrontation and everything would fall apart. And then he would have to leave and go on to the, to the next town, leaving a contingent, a cohort of believing people in that town. Those were the three previous stops, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And then he came to Athens. And that's where he had that famous confrontation with the polytheists and the philosophers there in Athens. And then right after that is when he came to the city of Corinth. And he describes how he showed up there. He described the mood and the, uh, the, the, the physical uh, composition that, that he was in, the state he was in. He said he came in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. Why? It's because he's just been through the ringer and he had to be thinking when he gets to Corinth, he's going to be thinking, okay, Lord, what's next? What, what, what's coming up here in this city of Corinth? Add to that the fact that he was alone when he came to Corinth. His companions, Silas and Timothy, he, he, he'd sent on to Macedonia at the time but when he gets to Corinth, he is greatly blessed by the hospitality of a man and woman named Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife. They were Jews. They were also tent makers like Paul. That was his trade to the side. So they had something to talk about. And they, they immediately hit it off and they had some, some things in common. So he stayed, Paul stayed with Aquila and Priscilla uh, while he preached in the Jewish synagogue in Corinth every single Sabbath. So every Sabbath he would go to the synagogue and he would preach Christ out of the Hebrew scriptures to the people in the synagogue. He was so successful there over those many weeks in pursuit, per, persuading both Jews and, and Greek converts to Judaism that, that once again, here in the synagogue, the Jews felt threatened and they opposed him and they ran him out of the synagogue. So Paul opened up shop right next door to the synagogue in the house of a believer named Justice. It's whenever you drive through town and you see a CVS on one corner, a Walgreens on another corner, you see a, a Burger King and a McDonald's, that's the philosophy that Paul had. We're going to go right next door. There's a believer that lives right next door to the synagogue, Justice, and we're going to set up shop there. So over the course of his teaching there in the house of Justice, the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the leader of the synagogue brought his whole family over to the church and many other converts with him over to the church. Now it's a competition, right? The synagogue is feeling uh, this drain of their resources and their people over next door to the house of justice and the church that's meeting there. And this is when the Lord speaks to Paul in a dream. And the Lord tells Paul, he says, stay there, be bold, don't be silent. The Lord says, for I have many people in this city. I'm, I'm going to use your work there and bless it in a great way. And Paul obeyed. He stayed in Corinth for an extended period of time. He wrote the letter to the Romans while he was in Corinth. Uh, because the, the letter to the Romans has all these greetings at the end from the church at Corinth. So that's, we, we uh, surmise that, that he wrote Romans while he was there. And then he'd been there a year and six months teaching and ministering when the Jews next door decided that they would take him to court. Uh, the new ruler of the synagogue, remember the previous one, Crispus, had come over 
to the church. So the new ruler of the synagogue named Sosthenes brought Paul to the Roman judgment seat where he made the case that Paul was teaching people to disobey Roman law. That was his, that was his case. Well, the Roman proconsul he laughed Sosthenes right out of court. He saw right away, this is a non-issue. This guy's, whatever he's teaching, he's not teaching people to disobey Roman law. And then, uh, and then the proconsul had Sosthenes beaten for wasting his time. Now, underline that name and keep, keep hold of it, Sosthenes. It's going to come up later. Remember that. By the way, if you want to read all that, that's all in Acts chapter 18, if you want to catch up to that later and, and get the background that I just summarized for you. So after this time, Paul remained a little while until he decided that it was time to go back to Ephesus, and he took Aquila and Priscilla with him to Ephesus. When they get to Ephesus, they meet a zealous, young, energetic preacher named Apollos. They train Apollos in Ephesus, and then they send him back to Corinth to minister there in their stead. So by all indications, Paul had a long and fruitful ministry in the city of Corinth. And not all the people who came to know the Lord Jesus there were Jews. In fact, there were many Gentiles, perhaps even the majority of them were Gentiles. Because when we get into his letters to the Corinthians, all the people he addresses have Greek names. Not only were they Greek, but they seem to have some kind of wealth and some kind of influence. When he writes from Corinth to Rome and he passes along greetings from Corinth to Rome, he mentions by name a man named Gaius who had enough substance and enough uh, wealth to provide hospitality to the whole church. He was able to uh, provide for the physical needs of all the Christians there in Corinth. Paul also mentions Erastus who was the city treasurer of Corinth in his letter to the Romans. Uh, the, the, the Corinth city treasurer was a believer and, and was a part of the church in Corinth. So throughout the Corinthian epistles, the subjects that Paul addresses give us a window into what kinds of people he's ministering to there. They were involved in legal affairs. They had big banquets. There were rich people in the church whose lifestyles Paul directly addressed, but not everybody was rich. There was considerable wealth and there was great substance among the people in Corinth in that church, but not everybody was rich. In fact, there were tensions between the rich and the poor, and that even caused a rift at the Lord's table that he had to address. But there were people of means there in the church at Corinth. And, and that points us to the effect, effectiveness that God gave Paul while he ministered there, that he was able to reach every strata of society. Well, after he left, Paul's relationship with the church continued. Now, they had Apollos, but Paul's wisdom was still sought after. His instruction was still sought after. And it looked like things weren't going so well after Paul left with Aquila and Priscilla and sent Apollos back over there. The leaders of the church still wanted his counsel. So 1 Corinthians, the letter we refer to as 1 Corinthians, refers to a previous letter that Paul had written them. Now, the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to preserve that letter for us. We don't have it, and we don't know everything that it says. But it helps to know that there's a background to Paul's correspondence with this church. Several people in the church respond to that first letter with a number of questions. And so what we call 1 Corinthians is Paul's answer to the questions that were brought up from his previous letter. So, so he writes this letter back to them, but not before he sends Timothy to them. 
It's as if he says, you know what? I'm going to get around to answering your questions. I'm going to take some time and I'm going to write this all out. But you need some help now. And so he sends Timothy on ahead. And it's almost an uh, a, a endorsement of the value of face-to-face communication over written communication. Hey, I can write you a letter, but I need to send Timothy to you. That's far better. You need face-to-face help and counsel and wisdom and leadership. I'll write the letter. That's coming. But you need Timothy. Uh, nothing beats face-to-face interaction. Well, Paul sends the letter and then after he sends this that we call 1 Corinthians, he actually goes to Corinth to try to clear up some of these matters. And that's probably what he refers to later as his painful visit to Corinth. Uh, that, that will come up later. And then at least one more letter was sent before he wrote what we know as 2 Corinthians, where he indicates that he's willing to make a third trip over there and where he defends his apostolic authority, which was being questioned at this point. So this summary, and I've tried to pull this timeline together for you to show you this one thing, that Paul had a great deal of time and effort and energy and emotion invested in this congregation at Corinth. We have more volume of correspondence to the church at Corinth than we have any other letter or correspondence of the Apostle Paul's. When you combine 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we have more of Paul's words to this church than to any other, and we don't even have all of his letters. There are at least two other letters, maybe three, that we don't have that he wrote to this one church. So it's apparent that Paul had a certain bond with them, a deep sense of responsibility toward them, a, a level of intimacy where he could address things in a very frank and open manner. Uh, the church father, Tertullian, uh, Tertullian, he said this letter was written not with ink, but with gall, as if, as if uh, Paul wrote this with poison, as, as he uh, has to kind of rip apart some of their terrible ideas and tear into them for their uh, bad behaviors, even while uh, uh, affirming Christ's love for them and their union with Christ throughout it. Another reason for Paul's urgency and boldness in addressing this church is not only his relationship with them, which was significant, but Corinth was poised as as one of the strategic metropolitan centers of the Roman Empire. A healthy, vibrant Christian church in the city of Corinth could be a major influence on the entire empire. Corinth was one of the biggest cities in Greece. About 100,000 people lived there, but many more merchants and tradesmen flooded into the city continually. The city sat right at the crossroads of a major east to west, north to south uh, set of trade routes, which made Corinth a hub of trade and commerce for the entire region. So there was a constant steady stream of visitors from all over the world to the city of Corinth. And many tradesmen settled down there to make their living, and that included a sizable Jewish population. So with all these influences from all over the place, If you couldn't find it in Corinth, you didn't need it. Everything was there. It was this big melting pot of of all of these influences and societies and cultures, as, as well as a tourist destination, people visiting from out of town in a big city where there are all kinds of strangers and nobody knows you. They would, they would try things that they wouldn't try at home. And all of those experiences, whatever you can uh, possibly think of, that was already ready available in Corinth. So much that even the ancients, even the pagans had a term for it. They would say, 
to Corinthianize. Where's he gone? Well, he's gone to Corinthianize. And what does that mean? It, it means essentially he's gone to the devil. That's what, that's what it meant. To go to Corinth was to go to the devil or to go, go raise hell in, in so many words. That's what, that's what it was uh, slang for. So I can imagine that ancient businessmen and, and tourists would say something like, you know, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It was a, it was a sin city. <laughs> Uh, by all accounts. Now, if ancient pagans say, oh, that's Sin City, you know it was, you know it was awful. Here's another interesting little tidbit. The city was vi- very near a narrow isthmus uh, 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 in Greece. It's a strip of land that connected northern Greece to southern Greece, and it was surrounded on every side by the Mediterranean Sea. And so ships going back and forth from the east and the west, rather than sailing all the way around the southern part of Greece from, you know, Italy to Asia Minor down that way, rather than sailing all the way around the south where the weather, certain parts of the year, the weather was very bad. It was very treacherous throughout that route. They had a system where they would get the ships up out of the water and they would roll them across that isthmus, which was about four miles wide, Uh, They had a system to get the ships up, roll them across the isthmus, and back into the water on the other side. They had even paved the route. So they turned these ships into trains, uh, train cars, and they they would roll them across, and they would get them back into the water on the other side. And while that was going on, the ship's crews would go hang out in Corinth. And you know what a laid back, pious bunch those sailors must have been when they got into town all of these influences. This is all going on at the same time. Corinth was also the center for some of the most popular Olympic style games in ancient Greece. They were, the, the, the Corinthian games were held every year. No, every other year. That's right. And the, and the games were considered these great festivals and sporting spectacles of the, of the ancient world. Uh, the, the region was also known for its great wine production. The word current, C-U-R-R-A-N-T, the word current comes from Corinth. Currants are berries that can be mashed and fermented and turned into a very uh, specific kind of wine. So we have all this good stuff like wine and sports and all of these things. You have wicked men who abuse those things and you have, you have drunkenness. So, so who would you meet as an ancient traveler in the city of Corinth? Well, you would meet the merchant who was doing everything he could to make a buck. You would meet the sailor on furlough whose ship was being rolled across the isthmus and he was in town for a few days with, a, with more money than brains and he was there to have fun. You would have the athlete focused on bodily exercise and proud of his skills. You would have the tourist and the visitor there to feed some lust. These are prototypical Corinthians, men who are centered on their own advancement, their own pleasures, food, money, sports, and wine, and that's what defines them. That's who they are. Thus, the city was an important stronghold for the church, a place where the gospel could radiate out to all the nations of the world, where people are always coming and going through there all the time. You could make make converts and send them to every corner of the world. But with that strategic benefit came the fact that even though Corinth was intellectually alert and materially prosperous, it was morally bankrupt. It isn't difficult to imagine then that people coming into the church 
leaving that culture would have a difficult time making adjustments to become Christians. They would be learning for the first time what it means to be a human, what it means to have a normal family relationship, what it means to have you know, ordinary um, relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children. So uh, throughout this letter, Paul has to keep these things in, 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 uh, in focus. And, and in addition to that, the Jews coming into the church, are, 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 they, they've got this doubly difficult task of repelling the bad influences of the city and at the same time understanding what it now means to be a Christian, to make adjustments in Jesus to everything that they've learned. And they would have a doubly hard time. So... So Paul keeps these things in tension. He has to address some things that separate Christians from the world, and then he has to turn and address other things that keep Jews and the church distinct from each other. So, so to the church, he says that, that this is what this means now to follow the Lord Jesus. And so to those coming out of the world, he would have to say, don't sleep with your father's wife. Don't don't take each other to court. Don't mistreat the poor. And then, and then he would also have to turn to those coming out of the synagogue and say, you know, this, this is how we do things now in the church uh, in light of the cross and in light of the resurrection of Jesus. The Jews are worried about their purity. They're worried about blending into the pagan culture, but there are also some things that they're overlooking in the process. And so Paul spends a great deal of time on dietary issues and the resurrection of Jesus to help them as well. So these two, these, these two things are in play throughout the entire letter, what it means to be separate from the world and what it means to be separate and distinct from the synagogue. And Paul works on this throughout the whole epistle. Now, thinking quickly back to the art of letter writing for just a moment, one of the things that you notice when you open one of the epistles in the New Testament is that uh, the epistle normally starts with names. In this ancient convention of letter writing, you begin with the name of the author or authors. Now, in today's letter writing uh, protocol, you put your name at the bottom, right? You, you say, da, 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 love me, or you know, X's and O's, or sincerely, or you know, whatever, and you put your name at the bottom. Um, in, in, and, and that's how we do it today. But, but normally in a phone conversation, you start off by announcing your name, right? You say, this is, this is Dwayne. It's, it's funny how we say that on the phone, this is Dwayne. But if I walked up to you in public and I introduced myself to you and I said, this is Dwayne, that would be totally weird. I don't understand why we do that on the phone, but we, in person, that would be really strange if someone said, this is John. Well, yeah, okay, well, that's good to know. Um, but wouldn't it be funny if we did the other thing on the phone? We say, I am Dwayne. Okay, thank you. It's, it's funny, these little things. But we always start by introducing ourselves on uh, the phone, and that's how they uh, begin their letters, and the apostles uh, begin their letters uh, with their name. Paul begins his letter, if we're looking there now at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you see that he begins his letter with Paul, an apostle, and various other identifying phrases. Paul's letters always start this way. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. James and Jude start with their name. John starts two of his letters by simply saying, the elder. So you begin with the name of the author and then also any other names that he wants to give credit to. The letters to the church at Thessalonica are from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. A couple of the other Pauline epistles are from Paul, and Timothy. And in the case of 1 Corinthians, this letter is from Paul and who? Paul and Sosthenes. 
Does that name sound familiar? From just like 10 minutes ago, from 15 minutes ago? Uh, I, I just mentioned him. He was the second ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. The first one Crispus had converted. Sosthenes was the one who took Paul to court and was beaten for it. Now, if this is the same Sosthenes, and it would be a really weird coincidence if there were a second Sosthenes, but if this were the same, then it appears that he had some sense beaten into him by the Corinthian uh, magistrate. And the guys in the synagogue must have been really frustrated by the fact that every time we get a synagogue leader, every time we get a pastor, he goes over to the church next door. And we get another one, and he goes over to the church next door. Uh, and so this very well could have been the man who opposed Paul, but now is Paul's companion in composing this letter and getting it to the church in, uh, in Corinth. Um, so Paul identifies himself right off as the apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And he starts off by announcing his apostolic authority because he's going to have to exercise his apostolic authority throughout this letter. And so he starts by reminding them of his position. He's going to demand certain things of them. He's going to tell them to do certain things. And so he establishes that he is an apostle appointed by God himself. Obedience to Paul means obedience to the Lord. That's what this means. But he also reminds them of their position, not only of his position, but theirs. He's not just throwing his weight around. He tells them who they are. He says, you are the church of God, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. The words sanctified and saints are both different forms of the word holy, set apart for special use. Just like you have dishes that you've set apart for special use. There are dishes you only use on Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter. There are clothes that you put back for special occasions. They're not for everyday use, they're special. And that's what these people are to the Lord Jesus. They are special. The Lord doesn't view them as rudimentary everyday tools, but he has a special degree of interest in who they are and what they do. So they are both holy and called to be holy. You are holy and you need to increase in holiness. You, you need to be sanctified and grow in maturity. So given the kinds of things that we already know that Paul is going to address in this letter, it may sound like a stretch calling them saints. I mean, once you start flipping the pages, you say, oh, that was going on in that church. Oh, I can't believe that was going on. What are they thinking? What are they doing? But he still calls them saints and he does so unapologetically, unashamedly. Just look at some of the phrases he uses of this church, beginning in verse 2. He calls them the church of God, which is at Corinth. Those who are sanctified, called to be saints. Uh, he says in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. In verse 7, he wants to be sure that they come short in no gift eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which they have been given. They've been given the revelation of the Lord Jesus, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless. God is faithful who has called you into the fellowship of his son. So he uses all of these phrases, not with this presumptuous, well, I just hope that maybe, possibly, some of this is true of some of you, but he lists these things because they are true of them as a church, despite all of the stuff he's going to have to get into with them. He doesn't hold them in contempt. He doesn't treat them hatefully. Everything he says to them is on the basis of who they are in Jesus. Because they are in union with Christ, he can say all of these things. You are the saints. You, you are called to be sanctified. God's grace has been given to you. You have been baptized. You have put on Christ. So now here's how you live. He gives thanks 
for not only the things that the Corinthians have done themselves, but for what Jesus has accomplished in them. That's what he focuses on. They were enriched by him. The testimony of Christ was confirmed in them. They will be kept by him and held until the day of the Lord Jesus. They were called by God into the fellowship of his son. So Paul leaves the Corinthians nothing to boast of. They hadn't even decided to become Christians. They didn't take the initiative. So Paul says, God called them into fellowship with him. Remember, Paul is the one who heard God say to him in a vision, the Lord said to Paul, stay here and teach here because I have many people here. These people belong to Jesus before they even knew it, before they knew it themselves. They were being called by the Holy Spirit as, 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 as Paul was arriving on the scene. So Paul's job was a matter of gathering in the people that God was drawing to himself. So no one gets the glory for this, but Jesus. And Paul dwells on the name of Jesus throughout this first part of his letter. He mentions Jesus nine times in nine verses of this introduction. Jesus is primary. The Lord Jesus is central. And Paul works the name of Jesus into everything he has to say about the Corinthians. Everything he has to say about Corinth, he has to say about Jesus. You know, the way that a young man We'll talk about the girl he loves or the girl he's infatuated. He will work her name into every conversation or it works for young, young women too. They talk about the boy that they want to marry. Uh, she works his name into everything. Every story comes back around to Billy, right? Everything, you got to work Billy into it. You won't believe what Billy did the other day. He put, he put mustard on his hot dog. It was so cute. It was the cutest thing. And she may not even realize that she's doing it. Well, Paul isn't trying to be annoying here. But he's constantly bringing up the name of Jesus and reminding the, Christ, the, the, the Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth, and us, who is the most important thing here? Who is the most important person? We're going to need to talk about meat offered to idols. And we're going to need to talk about spiritual gifts. And we're going to need to talk about sexual ethics. And we're going to need to talk about marriage. But we aren't on our own here. And we don't belong to ourselves in such a way that we're just making this up as we go along. Or, or we don't get to think whatever we want to think. Jesus is central and the, the lordship of Jesus is central in everything that he's going to communicate. So from the first words of this epistle, he shows them at every point, their story is intertwined with Jesus' story. Their identity is intertwined with Jesus's identity. He is the one with whom they are to be identified above and beyond every other identity. It's not sufficient, as we're about to see later, that it's not sufficient that they be intertwined with Paul or identified with Apollos or be identified with Peter. Our relationship to Jesus is our primary identity. So the Corinthians like us, we're hung up on status, worried about associations and connections, who they were identified with, who they could latch onto so that they could maintain a level of respectability and a good reputation. Even so, in, in such a way that at all the church dinners, all the rich people sat together and made the poor people sit together because we don't want to be seen by them or with them. We don't want to be associated with them. And we worry about the same thing. We think, oh, that's so petty and that's so small, but we, we have the very same reflexes. And young people, young adults, I know that you struggle with it uh, acutely. It, there's this response and this reaction um, when you're you know, middle school, high school, a little bit beyond. 
you, there are people you don't want to be seen with. There are people you don't want to be identified with, with the, the certain you know, uh, segments of, of the, 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 uh, the, the school culture. The, you know, it would destroy the image that you want people to associate you with. So stay away from the geeks or the nerds or the, or the dorks, the socially awkward, and do whatever it takes to please the really cool people so that they'll let you hang around. It's all about externals. It's all about worldly respectability. And, and Jesus uh, pointed out to the, the Pharisees, it's just like whitewashing a tomb. You're just, you're just cleaning up the outside and the inside is just full of dead man's bones. And when you get older, it doesn't get any better. People also want to be associated with a particular neighborhood. God forbid we have the wrong zip code. We got to have the right zip code. We identify ourselves with our favorite brand names. The corporations drive this, right? They, they want us to become personally invested in their cheap uh, uh, stuff, their, 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 their foreign-made merchandise that falls apart the first time you use it. They want us to be associated with, you know, the junky car that doesn't last 100,000 miles. How dumb is that to be identified with consumable products, to say, oh, I bought this, and now this is my identity. This is who I am. I'm the owner of this thing. I didn't invent it. I didn't manufacture it. I just bought it. Well, you know, anybody, anybody can do that. But we, in this culture, take these things so seriously. Folks are identified by the shows they watch, by the movies they go to, the books they read, the bands they are listened to. That is their identity. The store where they buy their clothes or, or the grocery store they go to. Uh, proud, proud that you shop at a grocery store. Oh, I never go to that grocery store. I go to this grocery store. And this is, this is my identity. And this is my status symbol. Uh, we, we tie ourselves through this consumerism to social movements, to, to, uh, to telegraph our values through the things we buy. Uh, Paul cuts all of this nonsense right out from under us. He says, look, the most important identification you have or will ever have is your identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that relationship determines who your friends are. Verse nine, right? He says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is part of the fellowship of his son, the church, the body of Christ. Those relationships, that relationship to Jesus and your relationship to the body of Christ drives how you spend your money and spend your time and all other associations, all other things in comparison to Jesus are silly and pointless as status symbols. They don't make sense. They're not meaningful. They're all quite trivial because, because Jesus doesn't care about worldly respectability. In fact, what what is Jesus' symbol of his reign and of his power? It's the cross, which the world despises, right? A defeat at a, at a Roman cross is his, is his crowning achievement, is his, is his uh, rule of authority over us. It's his working out our salvation and our deliverance. But it looks a lot like weakness. It looks a lot like defeat. Conversely, the things that earn you the most respect in the world tend to be the things that set you in opposition to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The things that make you look the coolest, the things that make you the most respected by the world standards are the things that set you in opposition to Jesus. And so you're going to have to pick which kingdom you love, which kingdom you're going to serve, because only the kingdom of heaven has a future. All these other things are going to pass away, just like phone books and 
pagers and beepers and fax machines that have no future. Only the kingdom of heaven has a future. So you don't buy real estate in the kingdom of darkness. The outlook is bleak. It has no future. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first your identity with the Lord Jesus Christ and with his saints. And only then will you have life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to begin this book. And we pray that over the next several weeks, as again, that you will guide us into truth as we study it. Father, uh, give us your Holy Spirit. Strengthen us. Give us boldness to uh, more and more embrace Jesus and reject uh, the kingdom of this world that comes with all of this nonsense and all of these uh, false expectations uh, that are pointless and, and have nothing in them for our blessing or life. So, Father, we pray for this strength and for this wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen.